and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Newman. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. And this week, we're talking again with Daryl Pinckney about his new book, Come Back in September, a literary education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. Yeah, so the memoir chronicles Daryl Pinckney's relationship with the literary critic and writer Elizabeth Hardwick ever since he first met her in the early 1970s when he took one of her writing classes at Barnard. And this is a really interesting period, and importantly, we get into this in the interview, but Pinckney says that he stopped the period that the memoir examines as we get into the peak of the AIDS crisis, because that just changed so much for his friends and the whole world in the arts that he had kind of entered into in New York City during a really dark time, as I'm sure many people could understand. But so what we do get is it's the 1970s, it's New York, Pinckney is getting involved in this cultural movement and kind of literary and artistic avant-garde circle that includes people like Jean-Michel Basquiat, Lucy Santi, Felice Russer, Jim Jarmusch. You know, there's also lots of Susan Sontag in there. So it's just a really interesting time of cultural foment that the memoir covers. And what we really get that I know that both of us appreciated is a very intimate look at a relationship between two writers and a relationship between a mentor and her mentee, which was just really beautiful to kind of see come alive on the page. Yeah, there was a biography that came out recently of Elizabeth Hardwick. I think it maybe focused more on her relationship with Robert Lowell, the poet who she right, was married the to. tumultuous marriage, yeah. yeah. I, what I like here is that we get a very intimate sense of her just on a day-to-day level mm. without, I mean, there is mention of, of Lowell here and the period where their marriage was disintegrating and he was with someone else, Carolyn Blackwood, but it's not a salacious retelling in the least. It's just, it's intimate and it's kind of like going to her apartment and speaking with her about writing. And uh, so it's personal in that way, but maybe not personal in, in the way that we have come to know Hardwick in the last uh, decade or so. Which isn't to say that there's not some gossip in the book, you know, like I, I do love There's hearing, lots of gossip. Yeah. And I loved like reading their takes on other authors and also the period. Yeah. And I, I think it makes sense that Daryl Pinckney was Elizabeth Hardwick's uh, student and, you know, I don't know, protege is too strong a mm. word, but uh, because she is absolutely one of my all time favorite critics and all time favorite writers. And he is one of mine too. So I can, I can see she did a good job. Yeah. She, she taught well, uh, if that's how he became such a, an amazing writer. All right. Well, should we get to that interview? Yeah. Let's listen. We're so glad to be speaking again today with the writer Daryl Pinckney. Daryl Pinckney is the author of the novels Hyde Cotton and Black Deutschland, as well as three collections of nonfiction, Blackballed, The Black Vote, and U.S. Democracy, Out There, Mavericks of Black Literature, and Busted in New York and Other Essays, which he spoke with us about in 2019. His writing has appeared in places such as The New Yorker, Harper's, The Nation, and The New York Review of Books, where he's a frequent contributor. And the NYRB plays an important role in his new book, the memoir Come Back in September, 
a literary education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. Come Back in September recounts Pinckney's relationship with two legends of American letters, Barbara Epstein and Elizabeth Hardwick, who both co-founded the NYRB in 1963. Hardwick was Pinckney's professor in a creative writing class at Barnard in the early 1970s, and they quickly became close friends. She invited him into her home, into her writing process, and into a world of New York literary culture and gossip, which Pinckney doles out here in generous cupfuls. Through Hardwick, he met her best friend, Barbara Epstein, and eventually began to write criticism for the NYRB. But his memoir documents a critical time in both his own life and in Hardwick's, following the dissolution of her marriage to the poet Robert Lowell and the composition of her masterpiece, the novel Sleepless Nights. Thanks so much for being here, Daryl. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your kind words. You met Elizabeth Hardwick through friends and forged a tight bond with her after taking one of her writing classes at Barnard, and that relationship would obviously last the rest of her life. I was wondering if we could start off with you talking just a little bit about your earliest impressions of her and then how you came to write Come Back in September. I think the first thing that strikes you are her eyes. She had very kind of direct, rather concentrated look. She really looked at you when you spoke. And then her voice, her own voice, was so unlike the classroom at the time in the university. You know, she had a very vibrant style, a very vibrant presence. So nothing about her was professorial. She was this glamorous guest in sort of Barnard Hall. Columbia was very much like this then, this rather kind of dingy place in that old Yankee way, full of brilliant sort of Jewish students and these unlikely adjuncts because you're in New York City. And so the School of the Arts and places like that had surprising visiting faculty. And then the junior faculty itself was rather riveting at the time. So Columbia was a very sort of lively place, and there she was, not like other faculty members, but very, very literary. From the first moments you speak with her, you're only talking about books and uh, culture. She was very interested in the visual arts and especially music. It was a very dazzling impression. You note early on in the book that you're kind of trying to recall something that you think Elizabeth wrote, but you can't quite remember if it was her that wrote it. And you suggest that maybe forgetting what you've read is one reason why you might be writing this memoir. Can you talk just a little bit about what it was like to put together a considerable almost lifetime of memories shared with a person into this memoir? Well, I suppose that refers to age and not remembering. Sometimes I've opened a book and and then after a point come across my own embarrassing notes. And so you don't remember that you read it, you know, or something. There's that. And then just not being able to remember what you liked in detail. There's that. Feeling you don't have time to read again and read new things. So what you read is often a sort of choice or a gamble. I'll have time to sort of get to that. I knew her a long time, but this is only about the beginning. I wanted to stop before the AIDS epidemic, 
really changed life for my generation in New York. Things really darkened once AIDS got a grip on the world I, I lived in, or sort of one of them. And also, I concentrate on what she was like, my idea of her as a writer, or what I saw of her as a writer. And a lot of other things are left out. I wanted to remember these women for their minds before the scandals. So a lot of personal stuff, it just isn't there. This isn't a biography. This is my thank you to them for a really interesting start, even if I sort of made much less of it than they had hoped. Yeah, but you know, at the same time, you portray her and Barbara and Susan Sontag as well as very human. You know, there's that difference between reading someone and knowing them. And I get a very strong sense here of what they were like as people. And you don't hold back in, you know, portraying some of the cattier things that they said or the the mean things they said about other people, humorously so sometimes. So I wonder what that was like for you as a young person to suddenly become close to these luminous people and the difference between reading someone and knowing them, especially with Elizabeth Hardwick, who's just such an important figure. Well, they were not my peers. I was not a peer of theirs. I was always a student or a younger friend, an aspiring writer, and I wasn't the only one in their lives with whom they had this relationship. And also, I was the same age as their children, a little bit older than Jacob and Harriet, but, you know, David Reef were the same age. So my relationship to them was always one of observation and listening. And they also took care of one. The review had a very kind of protective relationship to the young people who worked for it and who used to work for it. You know, these relationships sort of went on and you had a sense of belonging somewhere. And in exchange for your work and application, they gave you a future. And so it was rather a fair exchange. It was not always easy. I got away with murder in the office because I was kind of adjunct myself and Black, yes, I think, maybe a little bit. But also I had no... I wanted to be a writer, not work in publishing. So my attitude toward this job was a bit more, I'm waiting tables almost or something. Actually being a secretary was the only thing I knew how to do. Did you think it meant anything about you in particular? Was that kind of like a head trip a bit to think, what am I, someone in my early 20s doing, being close to these these legends? Like, I must be special. I must be exemplary as well. Well, no, not in that, not quite in that way. I understood that I was seeing the side of their lives that was private and domestic. I wasn't a part of their social lives, not until I was much older and had moved to England. You know, I was on the sort of other side of their life. So I thought of myself as fortunate and very lucky. And again, because they were also looking out for you. You could feel that way about many of your moments in New York at that time. I was at a party and I was holding an ashtray and the next thing I knew, Andy Warhol sort of just ashed in it. So I stood like that for I don't know how long. 
until he smoked his cigarette and I was just holding this ashtray. He didn't say anything and I didn't say anything. But I thought, you know, isn't New York cool in that way? So it was all, always that kind of feeling of uh, the evening holds strange, random encounters that can and cannot mean something. So I felt lucky to be in New York. But special is not quite the right word. This sense of good fortune never went away. And also the desperate hope to prove yourself that never went away. I think that there was a lot of anxiety about failure once these people had started to pay attention to you. And I don't think I was the only one who felt that way. Yeah, I mean, I think anxiety is probably every writer's most comfortable companion. <laughs> um, but, you know, as you're describing, and one of the things that I kept thinking about as I'm reading these incredible scenes, I mean, this, for example, this anecdote that you give us about holding an ashtray that Andy Warhol is ashing into as if it's a mere accessory made me think about the way in which the period that you're recounting in the memoir recounts at once a world of radical politics and ideas, even, you know, ideals. And in other ways, you kind of paint a portrait for us of a liberated literary utopia, also an arts utopia. Yet it's also a pretty cloistered world that's supported by as many endeavors in the arts are by massive private wealth. And I wonder how you kind of hold those two realities in balance, this kind of liberated utopia of art and letters, but also the kind of background of extreme wealth and privilege that undergirds a lot of it. You know, I think that conservative mainstream or right-wing society has always resented the prestige of liberal culture. So much so that it's easy to forget what a minority culture this world represented. It was a small and cloistered place, but it had connections to sort of many others, you know. So it wasn't this all one big thing, the way we would think of the right wing side of things. It was always a very complicated patchwork picture in which this was one. The wealth that you talk about, I assume you mean having these investors. But this has always been the way, the connection between politics and patronage in America has always been there. Max Eastman and his sister, you know, had access to people with capital for the masses. Or the abolitionists were people of means who could support, not only support these causes, but not be punished for supporting them. This is a thing that sort of matters. And in civil rights, you have two kinds of private donors. One is the criminal element. People got a lot of cash from numbers, runners, and people like that, who often were more militant than the groups that they were funneling cash to. Mm-hmm. And from the Black professional class who couldn't be punished by white employers for trying to head voter registration drives or people who couldn't lose their clientele to white people who really sort of minded this. So this financial independence really matters and that they were rich people who were on the side of liberal ideas and has always been true 
in the West. It's still around. It's not that you also don't point out some of the contradictions even, you know, of the NYRB that Elizabeth Hardwick told you to read all the back issues and you're reading it and you're noticing the amount of white writers, you know, that are writing on black politics or black literature and kind of maybe the lack of diversity or also the clo- certain closed-minded ideas that these writers had. You know, talk about someone writing a takedown of Martin Luther King in the pages. And yet I think that it seems like this world offered you maybe certain things as a gay man that larger black culture at the time wasn't or couldn't offer. Absolutely. I mean, this is the fundamental divide in the book or the troubling paradox of my youth was that um, I sort of failed at black revolution. And I leave all of that out (laughs) because... I just do. You know, it was a kind of posture that I couldn't uh, accept. And also some of the politics were not really what, uh, in the end, I supported. And at the same time, this inheritance of, let's call it the talented 10th, for want of a better word, but it's really reconstruction. This is a reconstruction inheritance. You know, I had in my family, people walked from being enslaved into education. And I think that the middle class in the 60s was very startled to be attacked for being middle class because these institutions for them were the means by which they advanced. And now Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s new series emphasizes that aspect of them. But in the 70s, when I was growing up, this was a very attacked sort of world. This imitation of white society won't work. The legal approach won't work. But my parents were very passionate about it in a rank-and-file way. They weren't important. They were just lifelong committed to all this because it was a family inheritance. You know, they had a cousin who'd been really assaulted for trying to register voters in Georgia in 1948. There was a cousin in 1930 who was killed for talking to a white girl. And he was, you know, a university student in Atlanta. So there was no class divide in that sense of who could be attacked in this racist fashion. Well, everyone. So that was always a a surprise. But because you were part of this larger struggle in everything you did, including taking an exam in school or how you behaved, you know, it was a great kind of Burden is the wrong word. Responsibility maybe is a better word. And being in your head different, gay, meant that you weren't going to fit, you weren't going to check off the most important boxes about being the right kind of Black citizen. That summary is sort of unfair in many ways, and it doesn't quite get what I mean, but Black life was very straight life (laughs) and very responsible, and yes, something was riding on things all the time. Whereas the white life I found, first with, um, well, in books, and then acted out with in New York with my, my own friends, that seemed to me freedom. You know, there was a kind of, the black version of the 
youth rebellion in the 60s and 70s was much harder to kind of navigate because the existing models didn't answer for everything in your life. You know, my parents were really very clear, you cannot hitchhike. Your white friends can, you just cannot. Is race something you talked about with with Elizabeth Hardwick? Oh, all the time, (laughs) you know. We never agreed on anything like that, no. Yes, in fact, that was one of the great things about talking to her is that I could sort of try and listen and figure out what I, I meant talking to someone who didn't automatically fill in the blanks for me or with me. You know, she really wanted to know, what do you mean? And so, because she didn't always agree with me, you know, she did sort of force you to explain yourself in a way that she would understand. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Daryl Pinkney, author of Come Back in September. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We're joined by Namwali Serpel. Her newest book is called The Furrows. It's a novel, and Namwali is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Namwali, what book are you going to recommend? So I actually wanted to recommend a short story that appears in Edward P. Jones's short story collection, All Aunt Hagar's Children. It's a short story called Old Boys, Old Girls. And it is from the perspective of a man who's in prison. It's in the third person, but we're very close to this character. And it's the combination of a ghost story and a very realist story about the way that incarceration lingers past your release that I find deeply compelling. And partly I'm mentioning it because it was very influential on the second half of The Furrows, which features two men, one a man named Wayne and one, a man named Will, who is talking to us from prison. And it has struck me in many of the conversations that I've had about the novel that those two men are very rarely considered to be the main characters of the novel, even though they take up the whole second half of it. The representation of the consciousness of Black men young Black men, older Black men, and men who are engaged in very difficult, complex, and often dark relationships with each other due to the larger structures of incarceration and structural racism in America tend not to get very much play in representation, I think. And one of my hopes is that by trying to speak from the interiority of Black men like that, we might be able to open up our conversation about race, in particular by thinking about how class intersects with it. This story, I think, does an amazing job of considering 
what it is to shift your class position precisely because you have moved into a space of incarceration and how your relationship with your own family members can be completely warped by the loss, not just of citizenship, but of individuation that happens as a result of being incarcerated. So I really would love more people to read this story. It's incredibly haunting, incredibly beautiful, and I think gives us a peek into the minds of young Black men, older Black men, that we're rarely actually given access to in contemporary American culture. Well, that's a very compelling recommendation. Thank you, Namwali. Will you tell us the title of the story again and the author? It's Edward P. Jones's Old Boys, Old Girls, and it's in his collection, All Aunt Hagar's Children. Thank you. We've been speaking with Nomali Serpel. Her new book is called The Furrows. It's a novel out from Hogarth now. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Daryl Pinkney, author of Come Back in September. I think that one of the things, you know, is recently reading her essay, The Decline of Book Reviewing, which was published way back in 1959 in Harper's. And it's basically a searing critique of the state of book review culture at that time. You know, she calls out the New York Times Book Review and says that basically it's just too much people saying, oh, it's an amazing book or bland critiques that barely poke the surface. It struck me just how similar that is to contemporary critiques of book review culture, you know, that it's kind of like these passing of favors between publishers and the reviewers. And I wondered both, you know, she worked to create, especially at New York Review Books, a very different kind of book review culture, something that was, A, not just telling you what was good or what was bad, certainly, but what mattered, putting things in context, asking bigger, larger questions, you know, the kinds of things that I think most of us want when we read book reviews, such as yours. I've always found your criticism to be elegant in that way and probing. Oh, you're very kind. So I'm wondering, what do you think Elizabeth would think of the state of contemporary literary criticism? And then maybe as a follow-up, how did she shape your approach to literary criticism? I mean, I think that one could uh, adapt what she thought then to what she would say now. All of that still holds true. One of the things about the New York Review of Books early on was that you could write at length. And so it changed the way reviewers approached a book when they had sort of the freedom to write at length and the trust of the editors about what they were going to say. I think that the editors who made these publications, you know, did a terrific service to the culture. And to a certain extent, that kind of editorship is no longer possible because, you know, people suspect the very hierarchical arrangements of institutions from that time. But actually they were personality driven or character driven or idea driven often by one or two or a few people. And these are not sort of the democratic models for running publishing houses, publishing newspapers, periodicals. 
museums, et cetera, that people subscribe to now as the best way to proceed. So there was a kind of sense of new developments, you know, sort of founding moments all over the place in New York at that time. Collectives, magazines, theater groups. There are a lot of things were starting at the same time or getting going, and the review was but one of them. But it endured and survived, firstly, through the dedication of Robert Silvers and Barbara Epstein, who, you know, because people trusted them, wanted to write for them, because you certainly weren't going to make any money. But you could have the honor of appearing there, and it was very much so at the time. And also it helped you with your work because it was a way to kind of write books and to think about your views on, on different matters. So that freedom and trust mattered a lot and the long form. Social media, I suppose, has changed all of that, especially when it comes to the long form. But it also has changed this sense of where do we go for views we trust, for criticism we trust, when everything is sort of firstly absorbed as part of the market or market strategy or, you know, the selling of. This is a much more crowded culture than it used to be. And so it's very hard for anything to stand out, which only compounds problems in this case. Let me just stick to the rioter, who's already having a very hard time convincing himself, herself, or themselves that the world needs another book, another this, another that. It's very hard to find that in you at the best of times, unless you have sort of total self-confidence, which some people are lucky enough to have, and some people luckier enough to have self-confidence and a great gift, but that's rare. And also in this kind of a turning against hierarchy, turning against the idea of the artist as elected in any sense. People have also turned against fine writing as suspect. So some of the things that were for Elizabeth Harbert the greatest pleasure of the text or of reading is sort of under suspicion, and she wouldn't like that at all. Can you explain a bit what you mean about that? Sometimes I get the feeling that, you know, the bellette is uh, part of this kind of bourgeois mistake in literature, in the view of some people. But, you know, now that I'm saying it, if I had to cite the articles that made me say it, I would be hard-pressed to. This is the problem with generalities. And, uh, you know, you keep stacks of clippings so you can sort of refer to them and they just get too many. You sort of remember. But on the other hand, I don't really find that so vanished. I still like picking up the TLS and, you know, the New York Review and any of those kind of things that come my way. Everything is something I don't know anything about these days. Elizabeth Hardwick was pretty explicit with you that she thought you should write criticism. You definitely weren't a poet. <laughs> And also that maybe she didn't really think you should write fiction either. I wonder about that aspect of your relationship and kind of the way that she shaped you as a writer in that way that teachers can sometimes, you know, limiting the way we think of what we're capable of. But tell about how that came about that she would kind of tell you what she thought you should do and not do. 
Oh, well, I wasn't the only one she would speak that way to. I'm sure Sigrid Nunez has stories. Because at Columbia, I was very influenced by the New York School. Kenneth Koch and David Shapiro and John Ashbery was our god at the time. And trying to marry that with <laughs> other strains that, you know, I'd been exposed to, that kind of um, Black poetry, free verse. But, you know, I was someone who really knew every line of Plath by heart. So to have Black militant poetry in the imitation of Plath or, you know, something else, just, it was a mess. It was a mess. But I think it's because also I was interested in the kind of poetry that she wasn't so sure of, though she liked Frank O'Hare and Don Ashbery very much. So it was mine. The thing about the fiction, this is not, I wouldn't sort of blame her. I would blame, again, losing my nerve. If I had really felt it, you know, no one could have stopped me. But I was, in a way, not entirely comfortable writing about gay subject matter while my parents were alive. They read everything. They read everything. You know, I could publish in downtown journals that Lucy Sant and Barry Schwabsky and Robert Richman were publishing. But, you know, that was it. So that was already a kind of ceiling on that. So if I'm left with this Black subject matter, my feelings about that weren't entirely clear to me at the time, because, you know, you weren't sure where you belonged or how you fit in or what you thought or how to do it. I liked reading non-realist very much, but I couldn't write that way myself. I think the Black writer who, I mean, apart from Baldwin, it was really Richard Wright, because his idea of the South was not this kind of folklore place of enrichment. You know, it was, this is political oppression. And so at the time in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, this kind of thing spoke actually more directly to me. It was only when I had a kind of, you know, Baldwin was the first Black gay writer I'd ever encountered. And so Richard Wright could belong to my father, but Baldwin, that seemed to me very new or contemporary, even though Baldwin was my father's contemporary, not mine. And also his eloquence of voice, just the writing itself, just cast a spell in your heart. And Hardwick's writing, Elizabeth Hardwick's writing, did the same thing for me. The first things I read were from Seduction and Betrayal, and you just kind of glide through this really smart person's reaction to what she's read. You never stop wanting to know what she thinks and to think about how she says it. Similarly, you know, I think most of us who have had the sort of intimate connection or relationship with a mentor like you had with Hardwick still kind of hear that mentor in our heads sometimes when we're writing. I still hear one of my mentors telling me to make my sentences more muscular, more muscular, to butch them up, which was a joke that we had for a number of years, and then to define my terms or to reveal that there was some life and joy in my writing when I was just really over it. So I'm wondering if you still hear Elizabeth in your head and what she says to you or how she maybe continues to shape the approach that you take to writing. There are three or four moments in this book itself 
that if I had the chance to, I would revise the sentences because I can hear her saying, that's not a true image. That's not a true image. That's not a true image. So, yes, in that way, after I make mistakes, I hear her. <laughs> after it's too late, I hear her. I wanted to talk just a little bit about what she was going through in her life when you first became close to her, because it seems like I do think that Sleepless Nights is her masterpiece. It's just such an amazing book. So she was in the process of writing that, but she was also going through probably the hardest time in her life with Robert Lowell and him having left her, but also finding her own independence and living by herself in New York, kind of getting back to almost who she had been in her 20s when she first moved to the city. You kind of allude that maybe she didn't confide in you as much as she confided in someone like Barbara Epstein, who is her best friend. But um, it does seem like that you were around for a lot of intense well, she did say times. when it was clear that he wanted to come back that she felt, of course, you know, where else is he going to go? This is his home and Harriet and Maine, et cetera. But she was very conscious of the life she'd made for herself and she rather liked it. Again, I leave out a lot of personal things that were going on at the time because they don't sort of figure in a literary way, the way that Lowell does. Anyway, she, you know, recognized that she had some independence and some reputation, but she also had freedom and, you know, Maybe it would represent a way to kind of live out old age, but, you know, she survived him by 30 years. So I think that the sense of the feeling of having to take care of him weighed rather heavily on her as this duty, but it was also would have been a sacrifice, no question, just because of their dynamic and how much care he required which was, I think, quite a bit. Was there a significant change in either, you know, kind of her affect, attitude, even her writing after Robert Lowell died than when he was alive that you noticed? Yes, because, of course, you know, when he left her, she was writing Seduction and Betrayal. So these are all about, you know, men and women and what happens or the limits of possibility of what can happen is what they're really about when you're talking about the woman's life reflected in literature, either by convention or by actual experience. So, you know, when he left or, and he was still alive, there was this thing. When he died, you know, of course the theme shifts and so it's more memory. Sleepless Nights is a work about memory as well as a work of memory. And I think one of the first things she wrote after his death had to do with Byron's mistress and Pasternak's mistress. She's writing about wives and mistresses and survival and widowhood. So yes, I think that very much reflected in the work and maybe would have been anyway. It's just the particular drama of this story it had to do with the cast of characters. They were, all of them, extraordinary. And so, you know, if they'd written very mediocre stuff about all of this, 
it wouldn't be the same story. Or if they were mediocre figures. I'm not a great fan of the dolphin myself, either in its original form or in what was first published. I can't be in that way. For listeners who don't know what you're referring to, that's the book of Robert Lowell's where he he misrepresents her letters to him. He sort he of rewrites them that. here and there yeah. to fit them in the sonnet form, but it ends up having her say things she didn't say or didn't say that way, which amounts to the same thing. And then Worst thing you could do to they disappeared, these letters, and mysteriously reappeared after her death. One of the things that also comes through your account is the kind of gossipy nature of Elizabeth Hardwick and that social circle, or at least like kind of how you encountered it. And can you talk just a little bit about that, about what it was like having that inside view of a writerly world where everybody was kind of talking about everybody and even the kind of literary lions could sometimes be taken down a peg in private conversation. Well, again, my not being a peer matters because mm. she's saying things to me that aren't going to go anywhere. Um, okay. <laughs> you know, and certainly shouldn't, or she's saying them with the understanding that they're not. They're also part of just the writing world. It's very hard to explain to people that Barbara and Lizzie would, could really knock Susan, but they minded it if someone they considered an outsider knocked her. They were very protective of Susan because she was her own worst enemy. As soon as she opens her mouth, you know, something <laughs> sort of is going to come out. But she wasn't that way at all, really. So they would say this among themselves, but they're saying things they wouldn't dream of saying in a wider situation or even in a sort of more adult situation. So it's slightly sort of, again, a domestic viewpoint driving yeah. Miss Houseboy, I don't know. I was reminded a little bit of Sleepless Nights with this book as being both a work of memory and I think also really foregrounding, it seems, being open in that it's hard to reconstruct the past. I mean, you were, I think I said this last time you were on the show, but you, more than anyone else I've ever read on New York in the 80s, I really did feel like brought me there to what it was like when I was um, doing some research on Nan Golden, that your essay on Nan Golden was, was the one that really gave me a time that I will never know and made me feel that I somehow knew it much more intimately. And it, in some ways, I think, you know, you're kind of trying to do some of the same thing here in, in touching the past, but also showing us that it's, it's not so easy to get back there, so... You know, the strange thing about Sleepless Nights is that it's really built up of the periphery. You know, that who she's paying attention to is a surprise, these kind of characters. And I guess I was trying to look at these as primary relationships of this formative period, really. And, you know, the early parts are sketchy and I'm sure I get things wrong because I was looking at a box of burned diaries and the dates are gone. And some of things are summations of something that happened some time ago. I don't know. But then the rest is, you know, really much picked up from the diaries. 
And I sort of explained when I thought I had to, but mostly not. I suppose it's that turning the page quality of this happened and then that happened to sort of give a sense of her, the rhythm of knowing her every Sunday or sometimes other things. She's gone in the summer. I don't write about the time I, I did go. She comes back in September. The diaries are sitting there, and that was one of the worst things about writing it was opening these journals after all these years and meeting your old self. You cannot believe what an asshole you were. You really can't believe it. You know, your vanity is still awakened by the huge fool. <laughs> So you just don't have to put in any of that. But I was in the habit of writing down what she said. And so I went through for those things, for her talk about literature, which was, you know, wonderful to me and sent me in directions I wouldn't have gone otherwise. And taste in American literature has changed quite a bit. But at the time, a lot of this was foundational. But to have a professor, you could say, you know, I really don't like the way he talks and to have and have not, that sort of bothered me. She understands. Yeah. But she would say, but there it is. The only thing you can do is write something better, which mm -hmm. I couldn't do. Well, I think that's debatable. Maybe that's a Hemingway, nice place. <laughs> hey, Daryl Pinkney's Daryl Pinkney. What can you say? Uh, father would agree he loved <laughs> Daryl, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much for your interest in Elizabeth Hardwick. She would be touched, I think. That was Daryl Pinckney. His new book is Come Back in September, A Literary Education on West 67th Street, Manhattan. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ji-Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladen. <laughs>